It's time for All Hands on Tech. Climb on board as we explore all the amazing things happening in Nova Scotia's tech sector. Each episode, we'll chat with local experts to uncover the secrets of what makes Nova Scotia the best place for collaboration, innovation, and creativity. All Hands on Tech is proudly produced by Digital Nova Scotia, the industry association for Nova Scotia's growing tech sector. Welcome back to All Hands on Tech. I'm Claire. And I'm Ashley. For this episode, we're talking about one aspect of technology that we don't often talk about here on the podcast, but is very, very important in our sector, tech law. Our guest today is the founder of a full-service law firm focused specifically on advising technology companies on both Canadian and U.S. legal matters. Voyer Law's clients span tech startups to Web3 companies and video game studios. There's so much we can talk about here, so we're extremely excited to have you and, and the firm's founder here today, Kellen Voyer, in the hot seat today. <laughs> Welcome to All Hands on Tech. Thank you for having me. We are... As I mentioned, very excited to have you on the podcast because we don't often get to talk about this subject. And I think there's so much that we can kind of tap into here. But before we kind of get to some of those questions, why don't you just give us a little bit of a background on your journey and what led you to establish Foyer Law? What led me to be a lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I started with an interest in technology way back in the day. And I figured out at some point I wanted to be a lawyer, maybe blame John Grisham novels. <laughs> and then I figured out, oh, there's technology law. That's a thing. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that intersection of the two is really interesting to me. And I focused on that uh, throughout my kind of education period. Went to law school in the U.S., just focused on doing work with startups and other tech companies. When it came back up here, kind of what we recognized early on was that California's population alone, forget the rest of the U.S., is bigger than that of Canada. So whatever you're doing, whether you're doing a software company, hardware play, what what have you, there's going to be exposure to the U.S. market, whether you're hiring people or um, you're raising capital out of the U.S., et cetera. And uh, none of the law firms in Canada do that in-house. They farm it out to, mm. to other firms uh, in the U.S. So for us, creating a kind of an efficient uh, process for providing legal services where we can do Canada and the U.S. in one location made a lot of sense with no one else doing it. Um, so kind of seeing that market hole is what led us to do this, and uh, it's kind of resonated ever since. Amazing. So it kind of just came out of some interests when you were younger in technology, and that's why you decided to kind of focus on this for your law firm? Exactly. Very cool. Can you give me a little bit of background kind of on, like, when, when was Voyer Law founded? I'm just curious. 2011 now, I think. Okay. So nice. getting up there. Yeah, right. <laughs> Very cool. Okay, well, we do have some questions for you prepared, but we want to get to know Kellen just a little bit more. So we uh -oh. have some rapid fire questions for you. <laughs> These weren't sent to me in advance. <laughs> exactly. That's the point. <laughs> All right, I'm going to kick things off yeah. here. First rapid fire question, and this is really a hard one. So uh -oh. prepare yourself. Mario or Sonic? Mario. Wow. So easy. What about Xbox or PlayStation? PlayStation. Oh my gosh. Cabot Trail in the summer or the fall? I've never done it. So oh, do no. you recommend what? I'm going to go summer being the better one, but maybe I'm wrong. I would say that would be like a 50-50 split, you know, depending who you ask. Yeah, I would say the fall probably. Fall. It's so See, pretty. See, the summer. And if you're doing like a hike, which is probably what you're doing out there, it's like nicer when it's a little cooler. Got the nice views. There you go. <laughs> we just answered his question for him. <laughs> I'm turning it back on you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. And what is your favorite part about living in Nova Scotia? I think it's the people, actually. Mm. The whole friendly with your neighbors thing. Mm -hmm. 
It's very Nova Scotia. Is it? It's not a Vancouver thing as much. So are you a better neighbor here than you are in Vancouver? Probably. Well, I've taken a bit of the Nova Scotia back to Vancouver. Okay. I do know oh, my neighbor good. in Vancouver. Just a totally different guy. <laughs> Way more friendly now. <laughs> That's awesome. Question time. We're into the questions here. Let's do it. Okay, so if you thought those were hard, here we go. <laughs> So you said that you advise clients in both Canada and the U.S. As a technology-focused firm, what are some of the unique challenges that you encounter when dealing with tech-related legal matters on either side of the border? The most common thing I deal with every single week are startups in Canada that read something online that said you should have a Delaware company. So they went and formed a Delaware company. Or Stripe said, because I think, what is it? One of Stripe services will give you a free U.S. company if you want to use certain Stripe services. Oh. And so they'll incorporate a U.S. company for you and not tell you anything about the ramifications of that. So we have a lot of clients that no. say, hey, we have a Delaware company, but we're all in Canada. And so that creates problems because if you have a U.S. company, but all the mind and management, to use the accounting term, is in Canada, then that U.S. company is really just doing business in Canada. So you have tax problems because you're paying taxes in both Canada and the U.S. You're not going to be double taxed, but um, you need to deal with that problem. So that's the most common issue we see, and it can be fixed, but uh, I could go on and on about Canadians and why they probably shouldn't have a Delaware company. To why start Delaware? With. Yeah, like, I was is that just say. random? Because like... uh, the internet tells them to. Uh, oh. No, Delaware historically was, it's a very corporation-friendly jurisdiction. Okay. Other states have caught up, but it has a very advanced set of, I guess, laws and case law that are very corporation-friendly and not as much shareholder-friendly. So companies like that, and the trend is followed to this day. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. But there's nothing wrong with California or New York, but if you work with a venture fund, they'd say, no, you have to be Delaware. And that's just bottom line. It has to be oh that my way. Gosh. Hot tip. So I guess it sounds like there's a lot of maybe misinformation out there and that's kind of where... I, I think the things that rank highly outside of my blog post saying why you shouldn't do this, yeah. um, that ranks very highly too. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a lot of information about where should I incorporate my startup is like the Google right. query. Right. Okay. And then Delaware immediately pops up. Um, and there's also this impression that if you're an American company, magically you'll get American money as if VCs search for <laughs> startups just based on where they're incorporated or something. I don't think that's the case. I've always right. contended if you have a good product, then people will throw money at you. Techstars and Y Combinator, you know, the two big incubators in the industry, used to care if you were a Canadian company. Now they don't. Mm -hmm. So I think that reflects the fact that where you're incorporated matters less than um, you know, what your business is. And I think as well, it's the thing we advise most of our clients, so you can start in Canada. If early on some venture fund says, no, you have to be a U.S. company, we can fix that. But don't pigeonhole yourself by starting in the U.S. and you miss out on a whole bunch of tax credits, both personal and corporate, mm -hmm. that you could have preserved uh, if you had stayed Canadian from day one. So for all those tech startups that are listening to this right now and are about to submit their you know, <laughs> Delaware proposal or whatever, um, what would you? What should they do? What do you? What do you tell your clients? I'd say, well, if they're in Atlantic Canada, I'd say maybe incorporate federally or Nova Scotia. We can get into the details of that, but incorporate in Canada generally. Okay. And then um, that'll preserve a bunch of tax credits you'll probably want. And then if you need to have a U.S. entity because you have investors telling you that, then we can fix that in an early stage. Um, but if you don't have any U.S. exposure, you don't have any physical presence in the U.S., then I would say start in Canada. Because um, as, as I said, you get to preserve those things. Right. Um, you don't get to incur extra costs. Because otherwise, if you have a U.S. company on day one, then you have to register that one as doing business in Canada, pay taxes in both countries, right. and pay two sets of lawyers or us or two sets of accountants to do tax returns for you every year in addition to a bunch of other problems. So 
it'll save you a lot of money at the start. I can barely do my taxes <laughs> as <know>. is. So. <laughs> <laughs> I would take that advice. Yeah, that's good advice. It's free advice, so take yeah. it for exactly. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, we could talk about so much here, but I mean, we have a tech lawyer on the podcast, and I think we'd be remiss if we did not talk about what everyone's talking about, which is artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. So. Obviously, the rise of AI and automation will have a major impact on pretty much everything. So uh, from a legal perspective, what are the key legal and ethical considerations surrounding AI adoption? I think as a lawyer, what interests me is is how I know people in the industry are using it. Like I know people in the industry that use it to audit all of their code. Mm-hmm. So they'll work on a code base and they run that through chat GPT and check it for bugs and things like that. So I'd be first interested about confidentiality issues. If you're using okay. it as part of your business flow, yet you're giving chat GPT or whoever you're using all of this data, right. mm-hmm. yeah, it's probably creating various confidentiality issues because you're giving them all your info. Um, so to me, that would be a big one. The other one we're seeing a bit and the writer strike is tied into this a bit, and the actor strike is ownership mm-hmm. of things generated by AI, whether it's images, whether it's voice, whether it's an entire part of a film, who owns that? Because in the US, at least, potentially that can't even be copyrighted because um, it's not original work of authorship by a person. It's generated by by the AI. So I think that'll be an interesting challenge as well uh, for for ownership and for the law generally. Interesting. That is interesting. Is there any way that it can help out kind of what you do uh, on the legal side, or is that something you don't even touch? <laughs> you know, I've wondered about that. I mean, I don't want to give ChatGPT all of my documents because right. then it's going to make <laughs> yeah. better documents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think for us in training our team, I don't want them to be reliant on AI, just putting in a you know, set of variables, filling out a form, and then it's automatically generated because I think you're going to miss out on a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, while we have some standardized documents, we have them read through them every time because once you read through it, you'll recognize a way to refine the document or you'll think, wait a second, this client situation is slightly unique and I should change this clause a bit. Um, so I don't want to be reliant on it at all. I think it can create some efficiencies like in incorporation and stuff right. like that. But I think going to the nature of will it take my job, <laughs> that yeah. question, yeah. Um, or all of our jobs, <laughs> I think that if, the, if all you do as a lawyer or other service provider is like basic stuff that AI can replace, I think you probably need to change your business. But mm-hmm. any lawyer could set a company up for you. Um, at least if they know tech companies, they'll set it up right. Um, but it is a, the value, I think, is that the extra advice you provide, you know, the conversations right. you have about someone's business that might surround what's otherwise a basic process that add value. And I don't think AI is conditioned to, to provide that kind of advice. That's fair. And also, I think some of the feedback on AI is that it scrapes the internet, right? Not everything is true on the internet. So mm-hmm. it's not like <laughs> scraping, you know, the actual law. Like, it's going to take some truth and some some... Um, false narrative and kind of paste it together so that's kind of the dangerous game with ai at least at this stage and, right so yeah and i'm no lawyer obviously but uh <laughs> but it's not like law is not black and white and like you said everything is super nuanced every kind of i mean i'm thinking more from a criminal side because that's what i'm more like you mm-hmm. know exposed to but everything mm-hmm. is super nuanced and like individual so you can't even like apply the same brush on any case, I think, would be fair to say. It can produce, you, know, you said write an employment agreement, it can write a framework thing, right. but it's going to miss a lot of nuance of local law. There was a, a case in the U.S. where a lawyer used ChatGPT recently to draft all of his pleadings to court. And so it wrote it up, it cited all these cases, and then he actually asked ChatGPT, are these real cases? It said yes. And it turns out they were all made up cases. But he oh. filed it with the court and <laughs> never bothered to audit ChatGPT's work. 
And oh, obviously wow. that didn't go down well for him. <laughs> that is a tough look. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That's a bad day. So don't trust chat, chat GPT if yeah. it says yes, it's real. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yes, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. That's you, so funny. Use with caution. Yikes. For sure. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, with technology, you know, AI is such a good example of how fast things evolve. How do you stay up to date on the latest advancements and their legal implications i asked chat gpt <laughs> um, <laughs> it comes full circle full circle uh, i'd say our clients keep us up to date to some degree because some of our clients are doing really novel things that are right. under the radar so you'll you'll face that as an educational point uh for me generally it's just staying up to date on technology through all the different usual sources whether it's youtube whether it's reddit or, or something else or you know wired or something like that mm-hmm. um but you know, the technology is one thing, but you're always applying it in relation to something that already exists. Like I think a lot of technology has some limited corollary, something that it's similar to in the real world already. So I think there's some value in, yes, you need to understand the tech, but you also need to understand, I think, what it relates to that already does exist, because that's going to govern how it's governed under the law and things like that in the first place. Do you do you play any role in, I know there's a lot of conversation around, you know, they're passing laws and the government, you know, is putting all these these things in place um do you play any role in in that from like an advocacy standpoint or do you kind of stay out of that and just roll with whatever comes from that i roll with it i'm not a lobbyist but um i think tech the government is always slow especially in canada to address changes in technology the u.s is always going to be leading the way Mm -hmm. both in case law but also regulation Mm -hmm. on on new tech it's a bigger part of the economy there and they're more respond well they used to be more responsive um so i i'd say for us we're not involved in that but we do follow trends out of the u.s and we assume that those trends in the u.s are going to be pretty instructive for canadian companies and they have to follow the u.s laws anyway so they need to know about them if they have u.s exposure yeah fair enough since we're talking about, you know, technological advancements, I'm curious, like, how have you seen the industry and how has your job, I guess, how has it affected your role in like the last, since 2011, since you've had Voye Law? Try to think. I mean, DocuSign, while it's simple, oh, right. it's so simple, that has been a very nice game changer, mm-hmm. um, sending things out and people accepting mm-hmm. DocuSign as a method of signing documents, but you'd be surprised for people that do real estate, we don't do really any real estate, but I know like in real estate deals, you can't use DocuSign half the time. So mm-hmm. I'd say for us, DocuSign has been a great efficiency. Um, and then for us, we actually have a lot of custom tech built for us to do certain things. So just having the skill set among people we know to generate tech for us has been helpful because um, we have kind of unique applications that we're trying to solve for. Um, so that's how I see, I mm-hmm. see tech in our business. But um, yeah, we're very digital based, so no paper. <laughs> well, that's interesting us. because I feel like, well, at least from my perspective, I feel like, especially when you see like the lawyers roll into court with their like Ooh, boxes bag. full of documents. Yeah, yeah the rolly bag. I've it's got like, one. <laughs> yeah, it's like you just kind of think it's a bit more of like a slow adopter to digital, I think, as an industry. And maybe that has to do with like cybersecurity issues as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. It's just interesting. I think it depends on the firm too, because right. some firms are very antiquated in their systems. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I, I worked at one of the big firms in Canada, and they didn't even have standardized templates. Wow. And you would think that everything would be standardized. There'd be like a Word doc that yeah, you know you yeah. couldn't touch, but it would be your template. No, everyone had their own style and, and things like that. So I think it's driven on the firm side. Um, and then for us, we we like to use tech as a big part of our business because obviously being a tech, we have to, <laughs> to understand it and right. deploy it. Otherwise, our clients are going to wonder what we're doing. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. Uh, I kind of want to go back to talking about tech startups a little bit because they often face some unique legal challenges. And I think a lot of that comes into intellectual property protection. So I'm curious, at what stage would you say that a startup should kind of seek legal advice or, you know, start thinking about protecting their property? They need to start thinking about IP protection on day one because yeah. the problem, common problem we face is that they've created this tech and they've got a team of a couple founders and they just think magically their company owns this IP because they own the company, right. but actually the company owns nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to transfer it to the company. It's a pretty basic process, but that is often missed and that can get problematic where a co-founder departs mm. and they made a third of the code base and there's no written agreement between them at all transferring it to, to either you personally or to the company and you need to chase somebody to button down that IP. Facebook had that problem with a whole bunch of contractors way back in the day. So you want to button down the IP in the sense of who owned it and transferring it to the company. Um, if you're doing something that could be patented, software patents are difficult to get, so that's up in the air. But in the hardware space especially, if you start to disclose your invention publicly, you may not be able to get a patent on it at all. Mm, so, really? Yeah. So there's a lot of disclosure issues that, that you may have if you start taking your thing you want to patent and giving it out to all your friends. Right. And and so for, for us, it's about telling clients, kind of keep your mouth shut yeah. <laughs> until you've talked to your lawyer about protecting your IP rights, especially if you're considering the patent side of things. And that applies more to hardware, but there may be some plays on the software side mm -hmm. too. And then I guess for other companies, startups love their name. Video clients, video game clients definitely love their names. And uh, and trademarks are now first come, first serve in Canada and the States. So if you don't file your trademark pretty soon on your game name or your company name, someone could file the same thing and you could potentially never get it. Right. Um, we have a client that we told this to and they spent a fortune on a video game and, th and then realized somebody has the same name. Oh, no. And they got to figure out a solution to that. And it costs way more money to, to fix it than it is to file in the first place. Right. Yeah. You said first come, first serve now. Was it not that way before? Yeah. I'm not the IP guy in the firm, but it didn't okay. used to be that way. It's a relatively new change in the grand scheme of the law. Yeah. So do you find that tech startups often know that, that they should be... No. Is this like a yeah, common... The tech startup people, and, and rightfully so. I think many people that are good at particular business, they don't know about the legal side of it. Yeah. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on the accounting or a construction guy isn't going to know about the law either, whatever your right. business is. So um, these are all issues that can be generated. I think it's important to, to do your base research. Right. Some clients do that, but you know whether it's reading blogs or something else, just understand the different issues. And it's pretty well documented what you should be focused on as a tech company, mm -hmm. as we've kind of touched on here on day one, what you should button up. And you have a good resource too. On You have a blog? I have a blog. <laughs> Thanks for the, the plug. Yeah. yeah, the blog's got all of this on it. So voyalaw.com. Perfect. Yeah, you can go find out more because we're just kind of scratching the surface here, but you've got a wealth of knowledge there, which is great. All right. So in your experience, yes, <laughs> since we're talking about your experiences, um, what are some of the most fascinating and unique cases that you've, you've handled and lessons that can be learned from them. I feel like you've been alluding to them. <laughs> so like give us some of the some of the dirt here on some of the most unique uh, experiences you've had. I think the unique clients to work with are always the hardware companies. No offense to software, but hardware you're often dealing with a really unique business. Like we have a client that does drone aerial reforestation. Oh. And that they were the first company to do that and we did all their contracts for drone forestry which I don't think anyone done in the world before. So it's kind of Very fun cool. to cool. to do that. But going back to that point earlier, people have done aerial 
reforestation for years using helicopters and things. So right. you, when we work with companies like that, you just tend to look at what's similar to in the past. We have another client that does inserts like a Dr. Scholl's, but full of circuitry that measures how you weigh your body. And they have like MLB players using it. And so if there's an issue with that, obviously the cost <laughs> could be huge. So yeah. facing challenges like that with the client when you're drafting legal agreements and, and how do you address those risks is always pretty exciting too. Um, but tech isn't as exciting as maybe being a criminal lawyer. <laughs> but we did have one client once that that called us and they said that uh, that they had sold shares accidentally to a mobster oh, <laughs> that had just been released from prison. <laughs> and uh, a member of a well-known crime family in New York. And they said, so how do we get out of this? We already spent the money. <laughs> so that was an interesting situation in how to uh, apply non-legal and legal skills to uh, to deal with the oh, issuance of shares to yeah. somebody that, oh, that that's fun. <laughs> you don't want to piss off, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, they probably didn't think it was that fun. Yeah. No, but uh, there's a unique situation for that's you. That's a good one. That is a good one yeah you came prepared um yeah because you deal with a lot of your clients span you know as we said at the beginning tech startups web3 companies video game studios but i guess you you also you don't you would take clients that are not necessarily in the tech space as well right we try to focus just on tech companies um if they're a relation you know one of our current clients we might you know do it um we don't want to say no to someone we know um, but my view is that everyone has particular expertise and mm-hmm. you learn a lot just focusing on a particular market. So those people that just do real estate law know way more than I ever will about real estate. Right. And uh, the same thing for, for us. We just do tech, so we understand that industry. We understand the trends, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's financing rounds and what term sheets look like now in the current environment versus when the market was hot. Um, so that kind of expertise, I think, is why you'd work with somebody that just focuses on a, on a particular industry. So we, we try to do that. Um, we do get some work just U.S. only. Um, we don't advertise that, but people do call us up for just U.S.-specific work because not many people in Canada do it anyway. Um, so we will do that if you want to reach out on that point. But we try to, at this point in the business, and it's been 11, 12 years of yeah. it, just stay focused on, on technology industry or, or ancillary to the tech industry companies. Yeah. Are and most of your clients located in Canada? I got to do the math on that. I think at least 70%. Okay are in Canada, the rest are in the U.S., yeah. um, and, and some in Europe and Asia. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I mean, from, like, tech is growing, so I, I imagine, and you want to grow Voye Law as well, right? I think you want to. That's what I'm, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So tell me a little bit about some of your, like, expansion plans. My expansion plans. Well, we are expanding into Atlantic Canada. We've been here yeah. for a year now, so we have an office in Halifax, uh, staff on myself and, and Haley on our team. So I, I've always viewed Atlantic Canada as an emerging tech market. If we looked at Vancouver when I started, mm-hmm. doing a business like what I do in Vancouver with more than one person, seemed, just doing tech seemed far out of reach. And it turned out that you can build a firm of you know, seven plus people based in Vancouver focusing just on tech. And I think the Atlantic Canada market is, is growing as well. There's been a lot of immigration. I know that's a touchy subject among sort of people out here, but there's been a, a lot of immigration to Atlantic Canada. I think that's it's been beneficial to the growth of the tech sector. Yep. And I was talking to some big Canadian venture capitalists, and I, I brought up this thesis of mine that this immigration and a bunch of other you know, kind of more youthful uh, population changes out here is going to lead to growth in the tech sector. And and they had the same thesis as well. They were focusing on Atlantic Canada as a fund, and they saw that the ceiling, the size of the market, obviously is not going to be as big as, as in Ontario or Vancouver or Quebec, but there's still plenty of market opportunity here to, to focus on that particular sector. And and so I think there's a lot of people now looking at Atlantic Canada uh, and its technology sector. 
That's what we love to hear. Yeah, I know. I was going to say to our ears. Thing. We actually <laughs> paid him to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can make the check out too. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Well, we've come to the end of our questions. So the floor is really yours. Is there anything that you would like to add or anything you'd like to share? Anything exciting coming up at Voyer Law? <laughs> Anything exciting? No, I'm a lawyer. Nothing is exciting. I just <laughs> hey, process documents. Cases. The mob story. We need more uh, mob stories. Yeah, right? More mob stories. <laughs> no, it, it's all kind of the standard fare for us, but uh, we're excited to work with more Atlantic Canada companies, so hopefully we can build a, a broader network out here and, and support the growth of the industry. Perfect. I guess this is a place, too, where we can say, where can they find you? They can find me at voyerlaw.com. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to All Hands on Tech. Interested in learning more? Visit us on our website at www.digitalnovascotia.com. We'll see you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. production.